Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. This morning, as we begin to look at our text, it's important that we pay attention to last week's text, which was found in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. It was a wedding in Cana where Mary, the mother of Jesus, came to Jesus and his disciples and said they were out of wine. And Jesus had a unique response to her. He said to her, woman, it is not yet my time. And I always thought that that was a connection to uh, Jesus not wanting to perform a miracle. But in actuality, he does perform the miracle. And the explanation of what took place is what we discussed last week that Jesus saw himself in this story. And I'll allude to that in just a few moments. But what we're about to read and study is from that same chapter of John chapter 2. But let me set us up even more by doing a correlation. Uh, We all know, don't we, that we have been blessed by grace and mercy, and we live within that. We as Christians celebrate that God has been good to us, and he's overlooked our weakness. But one of the things that's important for us to understand is have you ever sat and thought about what would set God off? What would make him angry? What would cause him to be disturbed with you? We know how to do this. We did it as kids. We assessed our mothers and fathers to find out what was the line we could and could not cross before they became very, very angry with us. I have three brothers, two older brothers, and uh, I assessed both of them. Steve, it was difficult to get upset, and Scott could pound on me pretty quickly. And so I knew what lines to cross, what I could do and what I couldn't do, what I could get away with and what I couldn't get away with. I did that with coaches. I did it with teachers. I think we all know how to find out what are the triggers for the people and what causes them to become angry. Yet when I ask you to think about God becoming angry, for many of us, it diminishes God in our minds. How could God become angry? Or even, let me pose this, how could God become jealous? Because part of the wrath and anger of God comes within the jealousy of God. And this is not something that we often attribute to God or look favorably upon. See, we understand that God is love. God doesn't do love. God is love. And yet, as we focus on this, the same scriptures that tell us God is love also tells us that God becomes jealous. And that jealousy uh, provokes his anger. Exodus chapter 20, verse 5 I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, this is not some theologian telling us this about God. This is God actually telling this about himself. Psalm 78, the psalmist writes, they arouse his jealousy with their idols. So are you comfortable referring to God as a jealous God? Are you comfortable with jealousy being a part of God's makeup? Because I want you to know this morning, I want you to understand that without the jealousy of God, we would be without hope in life. If God were not jealous for us, then he would not have pursued us, and we would be hopeless and dead in our sins. Jealousy has been defined as a a single-mindedness of emotion, and we all know that experience, that when we're feeling jealousy or someone is jealous for us, that there's no other feeling, there's no other capability of thought or emotion. You see, when, when jealousy is used by human beings, it's often selfish. It's trying to control and contain something that we desire. It can bring about even envy or greed. Uh, I found a a funny thing that was exchanged in a text message. 
the text message reads this way, uh, uh, and this not my wife and mine, it's actually this couple and a man says, hey babe, I'm in the hospital. I got my leg injured at work and Paula brought me here. Doctors say I might lose my leg. And she responds, who's Paula? You see, the jealousy that we all understand is the jealousy where we try to control. It's very selfish in nature. We feel like we're losing something and we're going to punish others until we can secure it back in our own interest. But there's also a divine jealousy. And God is attributed to having this divine jealousy. It's when God is jealous to restore and maintain what is his. Where what God does is not only best for us, but it's best for him. It's taking back into possession not only his, but being possessed by him. We're blessed by him. So without this jealousy of God, we would be without hope and we would be without life. God's wrath is always and always will reflect a holy intolerance of what is not right or good for him and for us. Where human jealousy is very selfish and self-centered, God's jealousy is very giving and compassionate and pursues us with love. With all of that introduction, let's look at John chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? What I'd like to do this morning is present one question and then bring the reality of that question for our second point. The question of the morning is, Where does his anger come from? Why does Jesus react the way he reacted? It's this violent explosion of his wrath. And where does it come from? Well, let me share the scene with you. It's Passover, which is the grand celebration of the Jewish people. It commemorates the moment when God freed the slaves out of Egypt led by Moses. He took them from bondage and slavery into freedom, and he took them from death into life. And he passed over their sins. If they took the blood and they, and they painted that above the doorpost, that the Spirit of God would pass over that house. And so the Passover celebration was the equivalent of their Easter, where we celebrate Easter as the grand celebration of the resurrection of Jesus, the most powerful moment in all of history. Passover was the celebration for the Jews of this day. If you were an able-bodied Jewish male, 20 years or older, and you lived within a 15-mile radius of Jerusalem, you were required by the priest to come to the Passover celebration in Jerusalem. Thousands, hundreds of thousands would gather in that town for this event. If you lived outside of that 15-mile radius, you were required to, at least once in your lifetime, attend the Passover. So this was a grand occasion. Before they would go to the temple, they would remove all the yeast and or leaven, depending on the translation of your scripture. They'd remove that from their homes because leaven signified a permeation uh, into everything. You put a little leaven in it, it would go through the the whole uh, lump of dough. And so because of this, they would remove this symbolically to prepare themselves to enter into the Passover. They would remove all the leavening agents. That's why on the night, they were told not to put leaven in their bread because they wouldn't be there long enough for it to rise. So with all of this background, they would come in. 
So there's this chaotic moment where the crowds have gathered in Jerusalem and the streets are full and the markets are full and, and people are visiting from all over looking for places to stay and for this grand celebration. And the only way to uh, give you an equivalent of it today is, and I say this to the men, put yourself in a panic mode, but your wife's told you she needs you to go to Walmart on Black Friday. And you know the tension you feel. It's crazed. It's packed. It's too full. Everyone's ambitious and everyone's excited and there's this energy that's overwhelming. Or, or picture here in, in Missouri where if there's a 10% chance of snow a month from now, people are rushing off to Walmart to buy all the bread and all the milk and all the eggs. You, you sense the panic, right? Well, Jerusalem had that high intense feeling when Jesus entered into it and he added to it by going into the place of worship, seeing what he saw, and with this anger slash jealousy, overturning tables and doing what he did. You see, in the law of Deuteronomy, they were supposed to bring a sacrifice. So the background that's needed for us to understand this text thoroughly is they were to bring a sacrifice from their herd the very best, whether it's a sheep or a goat or whatever it was they were to bring. And varying degrees, based on uh, how they were blessed, varying degrees of sacrifices were brought. And you were supposed to bring the sacrifice with you from your personal property. But because people traveled a great distance to be in this huge moment of time, that they often would just purchase the animals when they got into the city. And when Jesus came in, what he saw was people were bringing their very best, the spotless lamb, but they would take it to the priest and the priest would oversee this and they would say that your lamb wasn't good enough or your goat wasn't good enough, that your sacrifice didn't meet standard. So you can't take this. You're going to have to buy one of ours. And Barclay in his commentary on this particular text says that sometimes they would charge 20 times the normal price of that sacrifice. And you would have to buy theirs so that it would pass muster. And they had to be tested and approved. And then as a money changers, this was a new group there. Not only were they saying your sacrifice wasn't good enough, you'd have to buy one of theirs at this inflated cost. The money changers would say to you that your currency wouldn't work here. That you had to have the currency that had the king's face on it, that had Caesar's face on it. And if you didn't use that currency, then you had to exchange and the exchange rate would be just astronomical. That your money would have to be converted over to their money and their money would cost you more than your money and, and next thing you know, you're not only buying this inflated price sacrifice, but you're paying this temple tax. And the temple tax was given in the book of Leviticus so that the poor, the single moms, the widows, the orphans, and the foreigners could worship and have a place because the temple tax paid for the priest's salaries if you will, for their housing and their food and their care, because all year long they served the people at the temple. And so you not only had this inflation, but you have the temple tax and you have the sacrificial system and you have the corruption. And all of these religious leaders are getting in the way of the worship that's supposed to take place. The easiest way for me to equate this for us in our day is, let's imagine you wanted to worship here at Christ Church on Easter Sunday. You want to gather with your friends and family to the grand celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the memory of it. And you want to come and you want to have that special Easter Sunday here. But you find out when you come here that there's now a, you have to pay for parking in our parking lot. And if you want a, an, a, your own parking spot, you're going to have to pay for that. And it's going to be a couple hundred dollars to make sure that you can park anywhere near the building. 
And then if you want to come into the worship area, you're going to have to buy a seat. But we just put all the seats on StubHub and Ticketmaster. And yes, there will be surcharges and taxes and convenience fees, whatever their convenience fee is for, it's not convenient. But you're going to have to pay all of that. So to be able to come here on a Sunday for Easter to sit with your family in the place that you always sit, you're going to have to pay for parking. You never have to pay for parking. You're going to have to pay for a seat in the sanctuary, and you've never had to pay for a seat in the sanctuary. And before you know it, it's several hundred dollars for you to worship God. And Jesus walked into the midst of this, and he began to turn over tables. And he, and he took a, a whip, and he scattered the money changers and their money, and he, he scattered the animals, and, and he just had had enough. And John records in verse 17 that his disciples remembered that zeal for your house will consume me. And in that moment, it began to make sense. Jesus was jealous for God. Where did his anger come from? It came from the corruption. It came from men and women getting in the way of men and women from worshiping and honoring God for all that he was. And after he had begun to turn the tables over and scatter all the corruption and make a statement about its It's opportunistic nature. Verse 18. Then the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous signs can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? This is a moment that I don't understand. When a man has just cleared the temple and he's had this big irrational moment, it seems, in front of all of public to walk up to him and say, by what authority do you do this? Reminds me when I was a kid, I was in third or fourth grade uh, because I remember the house we lived in at that point in time and I remember what we were doing. It was a summer afternoon and my two older brothers and myself were in our little tiny family room with the television watching Bugs Bunny. It's that indelible that I could tell you what was on the TV that day. And my dad came home between shifts at work and for some reason he came home to get something and he walked in the house and he saw his three oldest sons on a beautiful summer day when he was working and he wanted to be outside. We were inside watching cartoons and for something in him snapped. He walked into our family room, he pulled out his pocket knife, he unplugged the television and he cut off the cord, the end of the cord that plugs into the wall. He cut it off, he put it in his pocket and he walked out of the house. And we all sat in that room absolutely stunned and dumbfounded. And he walked out to the truck and he must have forgot something because he came back in the house and he said these words. He said, go outside. And I did. For six weeks straight, I never entered the house. Just kidding. He had a knife. What was I supposed to do? Well, this stunned all of us because my dad was saying, you're wasting this. And so about two weeks later, or so it seemed, uh, we went in one day and the television was on and we thought, oh, he forgave us. We found out truthfully that my mom wanted to watch her soap operas and she was tired of not having the television, so he put the plug back on for her and our television worked. Never would it have entered my mind at that moment in time to look at my father and say, by what authority do you do this? It was his house, his television. He paid the electric bill and he was my father. And when they come to Jesus and they ask for this grand moment, they say to him, by what authority? Do a miracle to show us that you have the authority to do what you're going to do. And then Jesus responds in verse 19. Destroy this temple. I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it's taken us 46 years to build this temple. And you're going to raise it in three days? You see, there had been two temples. Solomon built the temple on the Temple Mount. And it was a 
beautiful, ornate. It was just a gorgeous facility. And the world gathered to that place. And then the Babylonian captivity happened in 700 BC or so. And they raised that to the ground, completely destroyed it. And then Herod came in and on the Temple Mount site began to rebuild the temple. For 46 years, he had that temple built. Think of the decades that it took to build this. And it still wasn't completed. And Jesus says, you want to see a miracle? Tear it down in three days, I'll rebuild it. When they ask him this question, how are you going to do it when it took 46 years to build it? They were asking a valid, rational question. Verse 21, but the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he'd said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. So what is the temple? He's relating it to his body. So let's remind ourselves, what is the temple? It's the place where God dwells. What is the temple? It's the place where sin is atoned for. What is the temple? It is the place where people come to worship God for their deliverance, for their hope, and for their future. What is the temple? It's the place where the priest intercedes for God's people. And all of this is happening. What is the temple? And Jesus said, it's me. He said, I'm going to tear down this holy place and you're going to seek God, find God, deliverance and forgiveness in a person, not a place. You see, take you all the way back to where we were a week ago in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. When Mary asked for wine, Jesus saw the wine as his blood and he said to her, it's not my time to give my blood. So he created the wine, but his blood would become the wine that would bring about the celebration the marriage ceremony that will never end. And here he sees the temple and in it he sees himself and he says, tear down this body and I will rebuild it. In three days I'll rebuild it because it is a person. It is the presence of God in Jesus Christ that frees all of us. What is the temple? It's Jesus. And the crucified Jesus would restore the temple and the miracle of the resurrection would be the last Passover. So now we see where his anger came from. He was jealous for God. You see, what we need to understand is, Mark shows us in Mark chapter 11 that this took place in the court of the Gentiles. And this leads me to my final point. The jealousy of God is our salvation. You see, without the jealousy of God, there is no hope and no life. For the jealousy of God is our salvation. Because Mark says what took place was this was in the court of the Gentiles. Now, in the, the Holy of Holy area, in the temple area, was the Holy of Holies, which was the primary spot, and the priest was the only one allowed to go in there near the mercy seat of God where the presence of God would come down. And then there was a court of the Jews. And there had been a wall about knee-high, a, a, a block wall, and behind that would have been the court of the women. And this would have been Jewish women. And then behind them was the court of the Gentiles. And this is where all the foreigners and all the non-Jewish people were allowed to come in and be a part of the worship of God. So we see when Jesus walked in and he saw all the corruption, he saw the manipulation of people, he saw people taking advantage of, he saw where it was taking place. It was in the court of Gentiles. Abraham was told when God made the promise that through his son, all nations would be blessed. And when Jesus walked in and saw that the people that were furthest from God were being kept at a greater distance and could not draw near to him due to all the obstacles and all the selfishness, the jealousy of God exploded in him and he turned it all over to make access 
You see, what Jesus was saying was, I'm going to allow nothing to become between you and God. And I'm going to be the means by which you're saved. You see, from the Garden of Eden to the traveling tabernacle in the wilderness to the Temple Mount itself in Jerusalem and after its destruction and because of what Jesus did through the resurrection in his own body, God has been drawing closer and closer and closer to take away all obstacles and all distractions from us worshiping him. So in this moment, we come together and we ask the question, how does the jealousy of God become holy? I'd like to explain it this way. Jesus saw what was keeping people from drawing close to God. And he became the means by which we draw not only close to God, but God re-enters us through his Holy Spirit. So when we gather to worship, we're not to keep obstacles. We're not to, to stop people from coming. We're to open all of this up, this full access into the presence of God. So I challenge you, as you think about this text and you think about your relationship with God, what has been keeping you from drawing near to him and letting him draw completely into you? When you enter into the presence of God, bring your sin. Jesus will take it and he'll forgive you. Bring your fears. Jesus will overcome them, and he will give you hope and strength. Bring your weakness, because he will trade his life for your life, fill you with his spirit, and you will have power, not timidity. Bring your offerings. Bring your time, your treasure, and your talents, so that others will know the access to God through Jesus Christ for all men and women of all nationalities, of all ages, of all backgrounds, of all sin. Bring that so your time, your treasure, and your talents can show people that there's an access to God that few generations have ever experienced like we do. Bring your prayers of deliverance and gratitude. Bring your songs of acclaim. Sing to the joy Sing to the glory. Sing to the goodness of God each and every day. Worship is not limited to this location on Sunday mornings. It's a Monday morning. It's a Thursday afternoon. It's a Wednesday evening. It's bringing all of this together and singing a song of the goodness of God. Bring your friends and your neighbors. Speak of the goodness of God and whet their appetite with his blessings. Bring your love. He's jealous for it. And he deserves it. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons, or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.